People are incredibly malleable and changeable. We're incredibly influenced by what the social norms around us are. And if you look across the range of different cultural circumstances in modern societies, it's not like we're all the same. What I'm interested in is what sets those norms, because I think we are incredibly adaptable. It's one of the central paradoxes of being human. We want stuff to change, but we want it to stay the same. Has that impulse for novelty and newness that dragged us out of the swamp in the first place contributed much to the mess we're making of the planet, as well as bringing us beauty and creativity and joy? What do we do about the fact that there's an awful lot of very powerful people very keen to sell us stuff we don't need, which promises newness? And what do we do about the fact that so much of our politics feels like it's about not changing anything? This is Your Brain on Climate. I'm Dave and I've been campaigning and talking about climate change for the best part of two decades and there's so much I still don't know about one of the most important causes of it all, human brains and how they work. This is a podcast about psychology, what it can teach us about climate change, how we got it and what we might do about it. This week I'm joined by Andrew Sims. Andrew's an author, an analyst and campaigner who's written hundreds of books, not hundreds, a lot of books. He's co-founded the New Weather Institute, coordinates the Rapid Transition Alliance, uh, was formerly policy director at the New Economics Foundation and has written loads and loads of things. He was also one of the founders of the original Green New Deal group, which came up with a concept for the Green New Deal. He's a political economist and an environmentalist and he has written loads about change, both how you do it politically and how you don't do it politically, but also what it means to us as humans, how we understand it, how we understand ourselves in a world that's constantly changing, but also trying to stay the same. We had a great chat, actually round Andrew's house, in person, for the first time in heaven knows how long. We talked about our willingness or unwillingness to change, and also our surprising adaptability when we do. We talked about capitalism, Andrew's specialist subject. We talked about how it loves selling us things that are new whilst promising us also that nothing changes too much. And we talked about climate change. Is it a symptom of our ideas of what change looks like? And is doing something about it, about rethinking people's ability and desire to change and how you get them to do so? As always, if you hear this noise, it denotes wisdom and it tells you not to worry about pausing the podcast to look up the thing you've just heard. At the end of the show, you can check out the show notes, and I've put a little link to explain some more. So here's the chat with Andrew. It's a really great chat. I hope you enjoy it. We started by talking about his relationship to change and newness and things staying the same. Does he understand it? And is it true that he wants to change the entire way the global economy works just to stop himself buying more hi-fis? Your brain, Your brain on climate. The shape of my life has been um, created by a, a reasonably um, aware notion that. I really like stuff and I should not be allowed near it because if I'm allowed near it too often, I will accumulate it. So 
my decades of sort of working on environmentalism, looking at the problems of consumerism, looking at the problems of overconsumption, are acutely positioned in a a sharp awareness of my own proclivities, which is towards stuff and accumulation. So my campaigning life and my working life has been a a struggle against some of my innate sensibilities. Right, so you want the rules changed so that you personally won't give in to your demons. Quite so. I need help, people. I need help. Um, But I think I recognise that, right? I mean, I'm, I'm the same, you know. Like, there are... Great periods in my life, I reckon, when all I want to do is just nothing to change and nothing bad to happen. But there is this constant kind of scratch for something else, you know. And I'm just, I, I'm just interested in in the basic human need for stuff to change and why we don't always want that. What do you think? I think there's a couple of things. I think there's one really big thing, and that we can't ignore the cultural tide that we are living in and which has been flowing for at least the last couple of hundred years and without wanting to sort of get too highfalutin about it there's something about the cultures of modernism which embrace and have grown up through you know european north american um, societies about the need to wash away that for constant transformation, constant reinvention. And I think the market and, and capital and capitalism have been beautifully attuned to the way in which um, there are these deep cultural trends, which almost needs to make a point on a year-in, year-out basis that we sweep away what went before to transform and come out afresh the other side. Um, it's often sort of misrepresented but when freud for example who's got you know many problems and got a load of things wrong he talked about when he talked about the death wish he wasn't literally talking about people wishing to die he was talking about the urge for transformation and i think the economy the very the sort of consumer highly materialistic economy that we live in exploits this desire for transformation for reinvention whether it's kind of changing rooms on tv or the latest upgrade on your phone it tunes into that and it finds clever ways to extract profit from it which of course keeps us more heavily addicted to that so-called treadmill the hedonic treadmill of stuff yeah so we what we want to transform what do we want to transform away from what is that i i want to know if it's is it just a cultural thing is it just capitalism doing it but it sounds like you're saying no no and, and freud was saying no there's something in us that wants to transform what was that hedonic thing about the hedonic, the hedonic treadmill. Yeah. Um, the desire for transformation. I think we are pattern-seeking, copying creatures, restlessly searching out and finding our place in the world. That bleeds through into all kinds of different activities. Um, and it tends to settle upon the choices that are placed in front of us. Now, it could just easily alight on your desire to learn how to sketch or to build sandcastles. But what the market does very effectively is get in front of some of those other things, get in front of the fact that you could, without the market um, intermediating, sit on a sofa, have a conversation club, sit at home, find fun um, and 
ways of learning and developing through knowing how to mend stuff and make stuff, things which can give some sort of intrinsic pleasure, which are also about change and transformation and learning and development. But what the market does really well is to nip in in advance of all these other things, which might give us more deeper and intrinsic satisfactions in life and say, well, here's your answer, this shiny thing, this bauble. And what's interesting also from an economics point of view is that this is stuff which has been spotted from the very earliest days of economics. Whether you are talking about Adam Smith or Karl Marx, they both noticed the way that consumerism was really clever at nipping in and offering sort of false solutions to our quest in life to find and discover and seek out patterns and develop as people. But yet, there's also quite a, a great deal of our politics, particularly as evidenced over the last five years, is about not changing stuff. And I wonder if like, on one hand, then you've got the market selling us things and telling us we can have new and rediscovery. And, and, but also you've got the politics kind of seem to be, don't worry, nothing will change, you'll be safe and you'll be secure. And how does that tension play out? Do you reckon? Well, I think it is a, it's a very real paradox in the human condition. And it's a paradox that um, some very powerful forces, those sort of tabloid newspapers, are, are very attuned to about people can hold very contradictory positions simultaneously. We can want the familiarity of recognisable circumstances, the comfort of being in our own habits, in very familiar surroundings, whilst at the same time, still yearning for newness and difference and novelty. Crikey. Seems like this is what all tragedies are about, isn't it? This is the human condition, right? This, well, you know, this, and this is, this is what always happens. You know, you look at any great tra Shakespearean tragedy or anything like that, apart from the ones where people have, you know, sex with their mother or whatever. But you look at any of these great narratives and they're often about like someone who couldn't help themselves but mess up their own situation because they were driven by something, you know, be that cheating on their wife or going on some ill-advised adventure or, you know, whatever. The stage is certainly set for a potential tragedy, but it could equally be a comedy or a wild adventure. And I think the interesting thing is that within that, people are incredibly malleable and changeable. We're incredibly influenced by what the social norms around us are. And if you look across the range of different cultural circumstances in modern societies, it's not like we're all the same. There are some societies which are far more tolerant than others, some societies which are much more cooperative, some societies where they see the value in paying their taxes more than others. The fact that what I'm interested in is what sets those norms, because I think we are incredibly adaptable. Another one of the contradictions that we love things being as they are, and yet we are also incredibly quick to adapt when we have to. One of the, one of the hard things is getting over the bump of change. The prospect of change is almost always worse than the reality, certainly if we're trying to kind of improve um, circumstances. So there's a deep conservatism in us in the way that we resist change. But when it happens, we're incredibly quick to adapt to it. You can see some of that in the willingness, the sort of um, extended sense of responsibility that in spite of some transgressions has been the norm during the pandemic experience, our willingness to change our patterns of behaviour, how we travel, the wearing of face masks, looking out for the health and well-being of friends and family. Um, we've accepted what would 
formerly been almost unimaginable upheaval in our day-to-day life um, for the common good in the name of public health. And there's other ways in which in moments we see the speed with which we can adapt and change. When the financial crisis kicked in in 2007 and 2008, here we were in the United Kingdom, you know, with the City of London. We're in London. We're sitting in London at the moment, and the City of London, which is like the, you know, the the great temple of the modern capitalist order, and and overnight great swathes of it were effectively nationalised because circumstances demanded it, and people um, stepped in line and saw the necessity. And it just goes to show, I think, that the the greatest paradox, perhaps is that all we have to do is turn around and look behind us to see how change is constant. So I think one of the things about trying to imagine how we might surf or negotiate this very malleable human nature that could set the scene for disaster or adventure is to begin sort of planting in the imagination and reminding people of the possibilities of the positive changes that we are capable of, reminding ourselves of our agency, reminding ourselves of when things have changed in the past, which seemed difficult, troublesome and were pushed back against then and now seem second nature. I mean, take a simple one like smoking in public buildings and public places. Um, Not Nobody wants to go back to those kind of smoke-filled rooms anymore. People have still got the opportunity to smoke if they want to. But that was a thing which was kind of strongly resisted. And now it's really hard to imagine getting back on a train and it being a carriage being full of smoke. It's difficult for us to imagine things going badly wrong as well. So you're talking about rightly, it's difficult to imagine a better future. But if you'd have said to me in February 2020, right, next couple of months, are gonna, things are going to be a bit different. And you described to me the fact that the entire world was going to shut down, everyone would stay at home and et cetera, et cetera. And the government would use unprecedented powers. I wouldn't have believed it. And even if I had believed it, I would have been terrified, I think, of that change. So we, is it a problem that for things like climate change, we really struggle to imagine that as well? I think this is a, a, an, another paradox, because if you look around at popular culture, if you look at books, if you look at films, you know, the catastrophic imagination plays out on a daily basis. We have these, you know, doom-laden disaster scenarios all around us, and yet we find it very difficult to believe that very bad stuff is going to happen to us. Well, certainly if it hasn't happened to us before, perhaps if we've had bad, really bad experiences, it might be easier to see the possibility for that. And I think that is a difficult thing, getting people to believe in the possibility that unless we do change things radically, things could get significantly and dramatically worse. I mean, I think that is a very real thing, which is difficult to play with. Um, And it reminds me of that that line which has been said so many times, it's sort of attributed to at least half a dozen different people on the on the World Wide Web about, you know, it was um it has been perhaps easier to imagine the end of the world than a, a change in how the economy operates on a day-to-day basis, which is a kind of again another living paradox. And what we perhaps need to do is to kind of flip that and start imagining how things can be different on a day-to-day basis in order that we avoid the ease with which it is to, uh, you know, we can imagine catastrophic, uh, catastrophic, catastrophic happenings. So climate change, right? That's a thing. We talked a lot about people and change. Do you think we have got to the climate change what we have got? Do you think a large reason for that is because 
of the way we think about the possibility of change and the the you know the things that we want and how those things associated so uh, is climate change itself a symptom of sort of our psychology about changing stuff do you think i think climate change is a symptom of how we have been channeled to find fulfillment in life i think it's a symptom of a particular economic system which has quite straightforwardly defined success and human flourishing and well-being through the accumulation of the consumption of goods and services. It's an arcane outcome of how the system has designed itself. And it's something which the lie has been seen in from the very earliest days of economics. If you go back to the earliest political economists, they always assumed that societies would grow in terms of the amount of stuff that they had up to a certain point, and then they'd hit a stationary state and develop in other ways. It's one of the things which Keynes talked about when he imagined that by now we would all be working just a 15-hour week because all the gains in efficiency and productivity more widely in the economy would have been channeled into reducing our working week so that we could, to use his words now, refine the art of living. Well, right. Sitting about. Sitting about, yeah. chatting, yeah. looking at the horizon. Um, but the system as it's been set up kind of hasn't allowed us to do that. It's kind of kept us chained and well, it's, it's kept us sitting about. I was supposed to be sitting about by now. Right? Quite relaxed. Well, thank you very much. Um, yeah, there was supposed to be robots doing my bidding and everything would be fine. And instead, more work, more bills, more things, more stuff I can buy, more, more temptation, more, more, more. There's always more, more shiny things. It's that hedonic treadmill. It's, it's the misdirection of how we find well-being and satisfaction in the world. And, and the difficulty here is because we kind of know these things. You know, we've done these massive surveys that look at different levels of consumption lifestyles across people in Europe and whether you've got somebody who might be living uh, so-called you know one planet living a level of consumption that the planet could sustain for everybody alive today or right the way through to kind of you know eight planet living where you've got three cars parked outside TVs the size of swimming pools and all, and all the rest of it but then if you ask those people about their levels of life satisfaction there's no relationship between your level of consumption and your level of life satisfaction you're just as likely to have as high a level of life satisfaction at the one planet living level as you would be at the eight planet living. so we kind of know these things and yet of course we're locked in through a number of different things to not changing and we're locked in by to use the jargon the choice architecture the way that the world around us is set up to put certain choices under our nose um, that make those things more likely so you're more likely to go out and buy fancy hi-fi new clothes and all the rest of it than you are to think oh i think i'll go and learn how to sketch or something like that um, we're locked in in terms of the environment which constantly speaks to us in those ways so in a typical day you will encounter hundreds if not thousands of messages which are constantly reinforcing the message that you will have a better life you will feel less inadequate if you buy more stuff 
They're not giving us messages saying you'll have a better life if you, you know, appreciate a walk in the woods, etc. You know, nature doesn't have an advertising policy and a budget in quite the same way. Well, what you are getting is they're, they're saying you'll have a better life if you take a walk in the woods. And in order to do that, you should buy our product. So that, it's actually interesting. That's the thing that's happening. Now, and almost quite put- literally, that product might be a massive, great big SUV. Right, right. You open even the more progressive weekend newspapers, and you'll see full-page adverts with the, these huge, oversized, too big to park in a standard parking space. You know, three times the emissions of the EU recommended average for a typical family car um, parked in the middle of a forest somewhere with a happy family sat around a picnic table. Yeah, and I do think there's something about climate as a thing just being the result of as you say a lot of choices that we've made each of which at a teeny micro level and i don't you know i'm not saying we are all responsible for climate change although in a way we all kind of are but that no one is setting out to nause at the planet but they are setting out to just have a kind of nice day and the definition of what having a nice day often is is just this do this nice easy thing or you've got this thing that goes i want to do something different and that thing is satisfied by flying somewhere or that kind of thing. And that's because the way that we're kind of locked in by prices, like the bad stuff is subsidised, um, locked in culturally by having that barrage of messages telling you to do that kind of thing, and, and locked in in terms of, you know, our physical infrastructure. The transport systems massively favour the use of private cars. Um, fuel duty has been the same in the UK since March 2011. And we're facing potentially record hikes in train prices um, coming up in the next few months. So everything is perverse. Everything is set up to lock us in to that world of overconsumption and dissatisfaction. It's a perfect cocktail that if you also, of course, if you're kept dissatisfied, you're more susceptible to the kind of messages that say, you know, if you're in a hole, buy this and we'll haul you out, rather than actually the truth being that you're digging that hole even deeper. Your brain brain on climate. climate. So all the way through this chat, you've been talking about a couple of things. One of which is that we need to change because the way our economy is working the way that we are, this sort of fundamental human impulse for novelty is scratched by consumerism, is bad for us, and is nauseating the planet. But also that we can change, that we can change stuff, and we've changed really, really fast. So let's talk about that a bit. What are some of the ways in which humanity has kind of deliberately changed itself really, really quickly? What lessons can we draw from that? Well, I think... A whole set of lessons which haven't really been properly and fully applied to the climate issue yet come from a well-established, um, a well-established experience of dealing with major public health problems. If you look at the smoking, um, uh, smoking for example, both in terms of how people smoke and where people smoke, but also levels of smoking. Levels of smoking in um, most advanced economies have plummeted over the last few decades. And if you look at the approach that was taken to achieve that, it was from it basically, you know, coming at it from every angle, coming at it from um, a, a direct sort of personal uh, level of personal in personal intervention, coming at it from the um, perspective of public health communications, advertising, 
if you look at the evolution of the warnings on cigarette packets that started off with just a few bold letters and ended up with some rather graphic photographs of rotting internal organs, um, in the literature, we know how behaviour can be changed over time. And it's about accepting the problem, taking it sort of squarely on, making sure that you've got alternatives and support available for people who want to achieve those changes. But we know that those changes can be achieved. They can also be achieved sometimes at trigger moments remarkably quickly. I think of the example of the, um, you know, rightly fated young environmentalist Greta Thunberg on the occasion a couple of years ago when she chose to travel to the UK to address our own parliament who hadn't really had a proper debate about climate change for several years. And she chose to take the train. And in the four-month period from when she took the train, in Sweden the number of people flying dropped by a significant percentage, between 8 and 10%. And the um, number of people taking the train um, went up similarly. And that gave us these rather fantastic words, um, both flugskam, which means flight shame, the sense of people absorbing the idea that perhaps it's not a good thing to fly around the world and burn carbon and all the the rest of it, and therefore allowing that to influence their choices. But it also gave us an equally fantastic word, which I'm probably mispronouncing, but is something like Targskrit, which stands for train brag, so that you take the train and then you get the ripple effect, you get the social contagion effect of people seeing visible changes and it giving them permission and validation to change in their own behaviour. But we can see that when there is an increasing background level of understanding and awareness, these changes that might build up over many years but then can actually happen quite quickly... Yeah, plastic's a good example of that, isn't it? That plastic, for years and years and years and years and years, right, people went to the supermarket, bought this stuff, got a plastic bag, and I reckon most people just kind of thought, do I need this thing? I've got this thing. Everyone else has got this thing, so I'll have this thing. And then kind of the combination of a few things, mostly I think the David Attenborough thing about plastic in the sea, just suddenly made everyone go, no, I don't want that thing. And it got and it got changed. And and the supermarkets were made to change it from being, you get this thing for free, from to, to you have to pay for this thing. And and it, it wasn't it felt like it happened overnight. It didn't happen overnight because there was like all of this stuff in our head for ages, but we didn't think we were allowed to change, right? And then we did. I think I think the single use plastics example is a really, really good one. I think another one is the way that we've had a few trigger moments in the last few years around issues of everyday sexism and social norms shifting really quickly about that. Another moment, which I think was interesting because it caught the company itself by surprise, was when um, in the UK we have this baker called Greg's. It's on a lot of high streets. It sells a lot of cheap food. And it thought it would be a great idea to introduce a vegan sausage roll. Um, They did it almost slightly tongue-in-cheek. It was so successful, they almost instantly ran out of them. In my home shop on the high street in South London, it took them three weeks to catch up and get it back in the shops because it was a roar-away success. And the vegans were laughing. Vegans for many years in this country, the butt of many jokes. And finally, they were laughing. And multiple other retailers have copied the Greg's example and vegan sausage rolls are everywhere now. So I think... Attitudes around how we relate to each other, um, attitudes around you know equality, attitudes around what we eat, attitudes around how we how we travel, all of these things we've demonstrated in a really recent period of time that you can see significant and substantial change when the moment is right and when the right intervention triggers that. Um, work is another one, right? The office. 
There's a thing. Like, 18 months ago, I didn't want to have to go to an office every day, but I did, because it's where the office was, right? And working from home was a treat. And I'm sure for millions of people around the country, they were the same. And then now, and we don't know quite how this is going to pan out, but for a lot of people now, they've gone, well, I don't want to go back to an office again. A lot of people do, and a lot of offices will still exist, but something kind of en masse happened because of the pandemic, which was a load of, uh, seems like something that a load of people thought anyway, they were allowed to express, which is, offices are stupid. That journey's a waste of time. What have I got to do that for? Um, I mean, that's hugely positive, I think. I think there's two big things about work. One is both the length of the working week, and as you say, where we have been working. And there are moments often driven by some kind of external shock that allow us to suddenly discover that we're far more flexible and adaptable than we gave ourselves credit for. Um, I think of the shorter working week, for example, which has obviously been the, a very long historical process that people have worked really hard at reducing and fought for and has been resisted um, much along the way. But I think of in the early 1990s in the Netherlands, for example, in the face of a recession, um, the public sector in the Netherlands decided to put their workforce on a shorter working week. And it proved to be incredibly successful. And it then bled out into the wider economy and was incredibly successful. And nobody wanted to go back to the old ways of doing things to the point where both in male and female workforces, um, it's incredibly popular and has taken root. And I think we saw some of that experimentation being repeated at the time of the financial crisis around 2007, 2008. And actually, um, there are no silver bullets when it comes to tackling climate change. But I think this flexibility and adaptability in terms of where we work and how long we work has a bit of a secret about breaking the treadmill that's kept us on that overconsumption pathway. Because I think the moment that you're less in hock to the consumer treadmill of buying more stuff and earning more money to buy more stuff to make you feel better that doesn't make you feel better, etc. It opens up lots of other opportunities to make the changes that can be quite profound in terms of the adaptations we need to make in the face of the climate emergency. Which of the following things is true? Or are they both true? A... People really, really, really want to stop climate change happening really fast, but they don't know how to do that, and so actually we need to kind of help them to do that. It's, it's, lo- it's in there, but we need to unlock it. Or B, doesn't matter whether they want to change it really fast, it is possible to engineer society so that they will think it was their idea in the first place. Or are they both kind of true? Because I think not everybody, I think one of the things I'm thinking when listening to you is some people think like you about the world, but not everybody does. A lot of people just want to kind of get on with things, right? And is the trick with them to make them change, but to make it feel like it was their idea in the first place? I think the key to this is latching on to the experiences people have had recently that have allowed them to realise that there are other ways of doing things, that there are other ways of living. I think back to, I mean, even though, I mean, let's talk about the pandemic, because the pandemic has been this kind of eclipsing experience of the last 18 months or so. And no one would have, you know, invited it in, even if, you know, epidemiologists would say it was inevitable sooner or later. Um, but for example, 
in the earliest days of lockdown, when people were no longer travelling into their offices and they were going out and experiencing either for the first time or re-experiencing local open green public space if they were lucky enough to have access to it, if when they were working from home and the pattern had shifted, people discovered experiences which which they liked. They were liberated from some of the hustle and the hassle of the day-to-day office commuting existence. Now, if we can latch onto that and ask intelligent questions about how to keep the best of what we learned from that experience. Now, in other ways, the way that people organised at the local level in solidarity and support of people who were vulnerable, the way we recognised Um, the importance of essential workers who keep our health services and our transport systems and our carers, the way they were given special hours and special access to shops. Um, Even the way that some of the shops themselves ran campaigns when there were short-term shortages of stuff. And they said, they actually came out, the big supermarkets came out with a campaign that said, buy only what you need. Well, maybe that would have been a good idea anyway, all along. So I think... The key is that when there are circumstances that allow people to experience these other and different ways of being that have benefits to them, we need to find a way of holding those in view and finding out how we can design them in to our daily lives in an ongoing way. I think we've all shown how incredibly well we can adapt, how we do care deeply about um, the people who do good and socially valuable work in our society. And the moment, if you think about the incredible lengths that people will go to to try and ensure that their children will have a good, viable and flourishing future. And when you can join the dots between the importance of action on the climate emergency with that and the fact that many of these changes that are needed are likely to deliver for us a better quality of life anyway, well, then I am reasonably optimistic, but it is about joining the dots and i suppose for a lot of people it's about and this is one of the things with the smoking ban right a lot of people were just made to not smoke in pubs who wanted to smoke in pubs it wasn't like there was this phenomenal 100 percent consensus behind it a lot of people were told sod off you can't do that anymore stop it it's stupid right and now a lot of them wouldn't go back so there is this is when you need things like rules and taxes and bans on things as well right and accepting that people may resist it but kind of i guess in political terms seeing it through because five years from now people will go well great i'm glad that thing changed because now i've got a better car or a better house or whatever out of it i think there's a really important dynamic that works between um changes in regulation and politicians feeling that they've got the license to change laws and to change rules and longer term and sometimes quite rapid cultural shifts and shifts in social norms. It's almost as if the demonstration effect of people who are perhaps the pioneers of showing that there are other ways of doing things, giving other people permission to make those changes, and you get to a kind of a critical point where it becomes a social norm, and then it creates the political space within which it becomes easier to pass those rules. Similarly, in passing rules, it validates different forms of behaviour that then increases the potential for change and spreads that kind of contagion effect. So I think these two things are intimately connected. So there are times when I sit around and I go, oh, we're not going to save the planet. It's too hard. Climate change is too much of a thing. It's too much people are gits. 
It's not going to happen. And you can get kind of just this sense of what's the point of trying to get people to change. What you've been saying is stuff can change really quick and here's how we can do it. So what are the things that I should cling on to in those moments when I'm feeling there's no point in this, nothing can change? Come on, what are the things I should keep in my back pocket in a bit of paper? I keep a few words in my back pocket. I think of John Ruskin's world words about, you know, there is no wealth but life and life is all we have. And the challenge is to make the most of it. I think there's something to be said for identifying those things, um, learning to listen out for and see the things which give real value and quality in life. And that is almost, you know, this stuff is legion. When you get to the end of your life um, and you're, you know, asked for your life lessons, there are very few people who in that state of momentary grace are going to turn around and say, I wish I'd spent more time at the office or I wish I'd gone to TK Maxx a few more times. Finish that computer game. What people will turn around and say is, perhaps I would have spent more time with the people I love and care for. Oh, there's those five, there are those five things, aren't there? That meme that you see, the five five most stated things of dying people. Which you're now going to have to remember. And I can't remember what they are. It. I can't remember what they are, but they, <laughs> there's something, something definitely like, like I would have spent more time with my family. I would have spent more time reading or something like that. It's, it's all stuff about kind of enriching things. It's stuff which is intrinsically satisfying and valuable and makes us feel more alive and more rounded and more flourishing as people. It's not about buying shit. So your point is that is in us, that is innate, and the trick is to get that out. I think the trick is learning to hear that signal and see those opportunities amid all the noise, which is trying to misdirect you into buying a load of stuff to end up in some, you know, vulture capital funds back pocket for no good reason whatsoever. I think that is almost, it's what Keynes talked about, the art of living. It's finding those things which make you feel most alive. That was really good. I loved that. I loved it when Andrew talked about the World Wide Web. That's a thing you don't hear often enough. It'll be on about the information superhighway next. A few things that I was thinking about is this tension. We want change and we want things to stay the same. And just how confusing that is. That kind of, it's the heart of the human condition. It's why we mess stuff up that's good. It's why we keep stuff that's bad rather than flee to something new and better. It's a confusing thing. And where we put that impulse and that tension... It's down to all sorts of stuff, and where we, what we actually do with it, what we buy, what we move to, what we stay in. It's down to such complicated stuff in our society, that basic human psychology filtered through economics and culture and relationships and what normal is. And very little of that is maybe clear to us. But let's not pretend that that human impulse isn't there. You know, too often, it is a horrible cliche, and I'm, you know, I'm sorry about this, but too often environmentalism allows itself to be portrayed as back as not new as not novel and although you know andrew had a really good go at kind of reframing that about different sorts of expansion and activity for too many people climate change feels like it's not scratching that itch the itch that is triggered by capitalism and advertising and you know we need to take that seriously i'm not saying we have to make climate change you know things on billboards alongside apple phones and stuff as the next great lifestyle choice that's not what i'm saying at all we do need to understand that people want change 
but they also want stuff to stay the same and that's a challenge too given that you know it's not going to because the climate is changing even if we stopped all emissions now some climate change is going to happen so we've got a couple of real narrative challenges in there right but let's take him head on let's not pretend they're not there the other thing i really took from the chat with andrew and this is you know my people often ask me what my optimism is and if i have a bit of optimism it's that change as andrew says can happen so fast and we've got this weird relationship to it andrew talked about it a lot we kind of fear a lot of change but the fearing of it is worse than the actual doing of it Look at the pandemic, like he says, you know, look how fast stuff can change and how we can often think that change was our idea in the first place. And the biggest reason for optimism that I can see is, yes, okay, we've got seven and a half billion people on the planet and trying to change all of them at once is kind of challenging. At the same time, you know, this is an incredibly hyper-connected network world. And just think about movements that have come out of nowhere and transformed the debate. Think about how fast we can change stuff. And these things that are under the surface that make people want to change, but they don't feel that they can because they don't have the social permission. Well, those things can be triggered and tapped. And for me, that is the thing to cling to. We can change stuff really quick. Responding to climate change is not going to be linear. Has to be exponential and dynamic. And at the heart of that is understanding how fast stuff can change and how easily people will come along for the ride with it if it's done in the right way. If you want to find out more about Andrew and follow him, find out what he's up to, you can go to his organisation on the internet, the Rapid Transition Alliance, which is packed full of stories, the sort of thing he talked about, about how we are successfully achieving change all over the place, in loads of different ways, in culture and technology and economics. Also check out, he wants me to plug, but he's right to get me to plug this, his new website, Badverts, B-A-D-V-E-R-T-S dot org, which is a campaign to remove those bits of information that are misdirecting us and firing off our strange little brains in all sorts of unhelpful directions. You can find him on Twitter also at andrewsims underscore UK. Thanks very much for listening to this latest episode of Your Brain on Climate. Let me know what you thought on Twitter at Brain Climate. Please follow it, spread the word. You can drop me an email to hello at yourbrainonclimate.com. And please, 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 if you do nothing else, drop me a review on your podcast medium of choice. Give it a little star rating if your podcast medium of choice allows you to do that. And a review. Type some words with your hands. I will love you forever. It will be so, so useful. Please do that. Helps spread the word. Right, that's it from me for this week. I will be back next week. Until then, look after yourself. Don't change anything you don't want to change. But don't keep something the same that really does need to be changed. How about that? How about that? How about that? Okay, bye. Bye.